Hello, everyone. As you can tell by the episode title, this is not It's a Wonderful Life. Unfortunately, Caitlin got COVID and it's been really kicking the crap out of her and we were unable to record It's a Wonderful Life. Thankfully, though, we do have a backup episode, which is this episode right here, Coming to America. Same quality, same great discussions, just not as festive as we originally planned. I mean, there is snow, so hope you guys enjoy it nonetheless. Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Hello, and welcome to Operation Silver Screen. This cinema-related operation has been created to clear our desks from stacks of open cases. And what are these cases? Well, even being the film lovers that we are, Bright and I still have a huge backlog of must-see films that we still need to experience. So each week we'll tackle a film that either one of us, or both of us, still need to see. We'll then provide a debrief of our week's mission, giving our outlook on the film's popularity and significance, as well as providing our opinion on whether or not it's worth seeing and other fun insights. So Brian, what was our mission this week? Well, guess what, guys? Operation Silver Screen is coming to America. Where where were we before? <laughs> okay, yeah, good good point. We we've always been here. <laughs> However, we will not be talking about that. We will be talking about how Eddie Murphy came to America in the 1988 comedy classic Coming to America. Now, Caitlin, this is a movie that I have seen and you have not. Is that correct? Correct. And what kept you from watching this movie? So I just wasn't really sure if the humor was going to be for me for this film. I wasn't. I was a little worried that it was gonna parody the immigrant experience a little bit too much, and I just, I just didn't know that it was gonna be my type of comedy. And then going into it this week, I was a little hesitant because I'm not a big fan of Landis, the director of this film. We've watched. We've only watched one other film of his at this point. We watched An American Werewolf in London on this episode, which I know you're a fan of. I was a little on the fence about it. And another film of his that I have seen is Animal House, which I'm definitely not a fan of. And also, I did watch the episode for Coming to America on the movies that made us on Netflix before coming into this podcast and he's on that and he's interviewed on that and I didn't really like the way he acted either I just got kind of a bad vibe from him so I just in general just I'm not a big Landis fan and so before I watched this I definitely had some biases there as well yes I also watched that episode from the movies that made us and I know that vibe you're talking about with John Landis I was get he's a bit he's a bit cocky I can see if he's egotistical. I can I can definitely see that. However, he did win me over with something that he said. So I still I'm like, all right, you know what? You're you seem pretty cool. You know, it may I don't know, may got some other things going on, but I I really like something that he said uh, about making this movie, and we'll go into it later during the influence. Okay, all right. Now, I've seen this movie before, but I've seen this movie once, but twice. I've seen this movie in two, basically two parts. Like, I watched the majority of this film, and but I came in late, I think, and then I went back and I watched the rest of it. Uh, this is another movie in which my mom had me watch, which I'm sorry knows a lot of the movies that she had me watch were uh, from from the 80s. And this is, this is one of her favorite films, or no this is close it's actually trading places that's one of her favorite films 
Okay, I was going to say, she has a lot of favorite films that we've discussed on here. Honestly, there's just a top five, and we've actually, I think we discussed them all now. I think, yeah, unless, well, until we do Trading Places. Mm, okay. We, you and I already seen Wrecking for a Dream, and mm-hmm. we've see, uh, we talked about The Matrix, American Werewolf in London. Both of us have seen Pulp Fiction already, so now it's just Trading Places. And then Predator is pretty close up there. I bet if she had a top ten, to be Predator. Yeah, I know you said that she liked uh, Hellraiser too. Yes. We did that one as well. Yeah. Now, this is a very popular movie. I think everybody's everybody's heard of this film. If you haven't heard of this film, well, you definitely heard of Eddie Murphy. Now, this movie, before we go ahead and talk about it, I just want to let you guys know that we will be having no spoilers. When we do get to that portion of the episode, when we will introduce the spoilers, then I'll go ahead and give you guys a heads up on that. So, no need to proceed with caution. All right. Now, this movie did receive a 7.1 on IMDb. It has a 73% critical rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an 85% audience rating. This movie did win, not win, this movie did receive two Oscar nominations for costuming and for makeup, which actually the makeup award went to Rick Baker, who we talked about before, who won the makeup award, uh, the Oscar for An American Werewolf in London. And another award that I found interesting is that Eddie Murphy won the Blimp Award from the Kids' Choice Awards for this movie. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which I don't understand Kids' Choice Awards because they've had some movies that they've given awards to for the actors or for scenes from. Like, there was a best fight scene one year, and one of the, uh, one of the nominees was the fight scene from Pineapple Express. Between Danny McBride, James Franco, and Seth Rogen. It's like, what do kids have any reason to be watching that movie? Yeah, maybe that fight <laughs> scene, you know, wasn't rated R. But that the rest of the movie, yes. And this movie, too. This is, movie is rated R. There's nudity in this movie. There's a lot of uh, obscenities. So I don't know why this was up there for children. I guess because yeah. back with TV, you did have censored versions of movies. But I wouldn't think that a censored version of this movie would have been out by this time. Yeah, they do have some picks like that in their lineup for Kids' Choice Awards. And I, I always wondered that as well. And actually, I could see you censoring this movie and making it kid-appropriate. That That is possible. However, Pineapple Express, I have no idea. Like, if you cut out all the scenes <laughs> where they're smoking weed, that's 45% of the film. Yeah. And then the kids are just going to wonder the whole time, one, why is this movie so short? And two, why do the actors look so sleepy? <laughs> they're trying to find actual pineapples. <laughs> yeah, they're like, I don't, I don't get this at all, Mom. <laughs> now, did you find anything in your research of the film for the, what critics had to say about this? Um, I saw that it was a box office success, which is kind of important for this film, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But it made over $128 million in the U.S. and over $288 million worldwide. Yeah, those are some great numbers, especially looking at the uh, circumstances, which I'm sure you're going to talk about later on in this mm-hmm. episode. Uh, what is this movie about? It's not just about Eddie Murphy coming to America. There's actually a lot more to that. Eddie Murphy plays Prince Akeem, a prince who has been arranged a marriage against his wishes, and he decides to travel to America to find his actual true love. Now, Caitlin, you being new to this movie, what did you think? I thought this film was going to be more of a, like a raunchy comedy type, and so I wasn't expecting it to be a rom-com at all. 
So that surprised me. And for the most part, I, I did like it. I did like that it was a rom-com and that it subverted my expectations of it. I do think that the comedy could have been toned up a little bit more, though. I did have some good laughs from this. Um, there's a particular line in the film that, that had me laughing when he asked what a certain obscenity meant. But yeah, I mean, I, I had some laughs, but I do wish that I had a little bit more as the film goes on because I think it loses a little bit of the comedic aspect as it gets more into the love story. And so I do wish that it had a little bit more of that, but I, I did like that it was a love story. I think that seeing a rom-com like that was was good. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I was a little bit worried too with the whole fish out of water story. I'm not a fan of that. Though most of the movies that like I can think of off the top of my head, they, they've done it well. So I don't know why that's always I'm always cautious of that. There was actually something recently that I found it to be pretty bad. I can't remember, and that's probably a we good thing. We talked about it with Hocus Pocus. God dang it, why you had to bring that back? Sorry. <laughs> I had to remind you. Jeez. I was about to say, you know what, but don't don't remind me. I want to go through this happy. <laughs> but at least Hocus Pocus really it didn't make me mad. There's plenty of other movies for that. But however, as the movie goes on, yeah, it is it is a rom com, and it's something I didn't even consider to be a rom com until I read and it said that it was not only a rom com but an actual fairy tale. And I think this movie it does all of that really well. I think this movie does have a lot of laughs in it. But I think I, I agree with you that it could have had more, or they could have cut out a bit of the script and made it a shorter film. And that would have made the jokes a little bit more concentrated in the runtime. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it, it does go on for, for a little bit, a little bit, probably like 15, 20 minutes more than it needs to. However, I still had an enjoyable time throughout this and I had laughs and I you know, continue to have laughs once the movie was over. Yeah, and I really enjoyed our two main characters. One, um, Prince Akeem, played by Eddie Murphy, of course, but also uh, Semi, played by Arsenio Hall. I think that they both played off each other well and did an excellent job with their performances. They were fun to watch. Yeah, and I actually want to go and watch some of... I want, I want to see if uh, Hall has any other like great films worth seeing. You know, they don't need me must-see, but I would just like to see him in something you know, at least decent for his performance at the most. Uh, I've seen plenty of other Eddie Murphy films. Eddie Murphy is a great comedian. I really like Eddie Murphy. I've seen a lot of his films, especially growing up. So I've seen a lot of the bad ones as well before, you know, I actually had some, I had some taste. Uh, but yeah, now I'm thinking about like, yeah, he was always a comedian. I was happy to see as a child. And then as I got older, you know, I saw some of his, his other works. I saw the, I don't know. Have you ever listened to the stand up or seen the stand up raw, raw and delirious? No, I haven't. Those are some great stand-ups. They're just not just the best of Eddie Murphy, but just of all time. A lot of people reference those. So, I, yeah, I enjoyed both of their performances. Actually, I wish they had more. And it kind of makes me want to watch the second one to see more of them. But I wish they mm-hmm. kind of had a little bit more in the film. But that's not the only characters that they play. They play multiple characters in this movie. What did you think about those additional characters? That was one aspect of the movie I did not like. I think I'm just learning that that's kind of a pet peeve of mine in movies, especially since I also watched X the same weekend that I watched this. And that pet peeve being when an actor plays multiple characters, but one is just heavily made up and under prosthetics. And so you 
gotta pretend it's not recognizable and that that's just my pet peeve for movies they did the same thing with uh tilda swinton in suspiria and x like i said that was present in that movie as well and i'm trying to think of any others but i'm, I'm learning that this is a big pet peeve of mine in films so when i saw it in this one i was like dang it okay <laughs> yeah i'm not too much of a fan of it in x i saw the purpose in it the the yeah i saw the purpose of it in x and i didn't know you watched x we should have talked about that because i've been wanting you to watch that for a while and get your opinion on it i almost want to pause the show but i won't <laughs> we'll talk about it in our group chat later <laughs> yeah yeah so i digress on that but it, but i think there's certain levels of it i think the one with tilda swinton and suspiria that one was just completely unnecessary that one did nothing like there was no purpose of art in that one and then there's times where it's like this where some of it made me laugh and then other times i'm like this it doesn't really add that much to the film I mean, I think only one only one joke was was hilarious to me, and it would only work by putting one of them in makeup. The other ones, I'm like, all right, you guys could have just got somebody else to do these roles. I don't see what the benefit is. And then also just kind of looking at it from a filmmaking point of view, man, this seems like it's just a lot more work for a little return. Like, you have to put them in makeup, take them out of makeup. You have to record the same scene twice two different ends you have to worry about the continuity between the two this it just seems like a lot more for what it's actually worth except again for one joke and that's when they were having that whole date montage of talking to people at the bar and Arsenio Hall was dressed up as one of the dates that to me was hilarious and honestly I, I wish it was just that one yeah I agree I think it worked in that scene and it had a purpose but then the rest of the scenes it just it didn't work for me, and it was something that apparently Eddie Murphy had wanted, and I wish someone had just, like, reined him in a little bit. It was like, no, we're gonna cast actual people for this. I guess it I guess it saves money. That's probably the only good thing, but not that much. I mean, you still spend money on the extra takes, the film, the, what's it called, the, the time of editing and makeup. That's probably the, heavy, mm-hmm. the heaviest of bills. But they they have fun, at least, and none of it was too distracting for me. Especially because you have Rick Baker who's doing the makeup job and he's fantastic at it. I thought it was a little distracting, but more so with certain characters. Certain characters they didn't cover it up quite as much. Yeah, no. Some, yeah, there were some better than others. Most definitely. Especially when you look at it from today's definition and not 1988's definition. Mm-hmm. You know, from their, their Technicolor. How did you feel about the other characters? Because this is a huge cast of well-known and not so well-known characters you have people like samuel jackson who is completely unknown and then you have you know you're kind of a kind of a film legends like james earls jones in this movie yeah i really like seeing james earl jones in this film i think that was a pleasant surprise I did also like seeing Samuel L. Jackson. As you said, he was unknown at this time. This is one of his first big roles. And so I liked kind of seeing those like cameos almost. I don't think they, I mean, obviously they're not really cameos at the time. James Earl Jones was for a bit, kind of. But but I like seeing that. I like seeing actors in their like early days. I enjoyed that. I think though, in general, none of the other actors were really given too much to work with. Um, with the exception of the father, Lisa's father. I'm blanking on the actor's name right now. But I think that he was fun. He was kind of a little bit one note until a a confrontation later in the movie. 
But other than that character, I feel like, like I said, the, the characters weren't really too dynamic. Yeah, John Amos plays the father. And okay, I, th- yeah. I, th- I think he was doing a really good job. And But I really like James Earl Jones as the king. Like, that's perfect casting. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then I also, I like the queen, too. I think the queen did a good job for what she had. Yeah, she kind of had to play a silent role until it was her time to speak up. But just her her presence felt like royalty on screen. And that was done by Sinclair. It was it was good to see all these characters in this film. Especially one that's predominantly made of those of color. What did you think of Lisa as a character? What did you think of her performance? And what did you think of the love story overall? This love story was kind of it's kind of weak. I don't I don't think it was incredibly strong. Like I believe it. You know, I can see I think it was a bit rushed, but A, it's a movie. We got two hours. We're gonna kinda rush the the end of it. But I, I think she did good for she was kind of playing kind of a quiet character. But she wasn't she wasn't timid or anything. She was she was reserved. She does have a little bit more of a personality than you probably see in like most cliche rom coms. But I see I one one thing I like is I see why he would be attracted to her. I get that. I get the love at first sight, and I get the how it how it grows and how he becomes more um, infatuated by her. And and I can also see why she starts to to uh, fall in love with him. It's not so much that he's the juxtaposition of her current boyfriend, but that he does have a, a quality that's alluring to her. Yeah, I mean, I think they really wanted to make her a foil to his betrothed, the one he's supposed to marry, and. Her character wasn't all that deep to me, but I do think that they had some sweet moments. There are moments, there is one moment where they're sitting outside of a party and they're having a conversation and it is a sweet moment. And I do think that the conversations that they have with each other were, were good. They were well performed and there was chemistry there. But it, overall, it was a little bit of a simple love story. It is definitely sped up because this doesn't take place during a long period of time. It does not. And I like that moment. That moment, to me, felt more like their true meet-cute moment. Yeah, I agree. Another bit of comedy that I liked in this movie that I don't think I noticed the, the first time seeing it was the, the visual comedy. There's a lot of good visual comedy in this movie. And I don't mean like physical comedy in your face, and I don't mean visual comedy like just random crap happening in the background, like uh, with Mel Brooks, even though that's hilarious as well. But there was just some things like seeing his entourage just continually going through the scene with his Louis Vuitton or him talking about, you know, how he's he doesn't want this pamper life. And then there's just two giant elephants just casually walking mm-hmm. past the large windows or or probably the best one is when um, when the grandmother, mother and father get up from the couch and they still have the the hair product stains on the couch from where they were sitting. Oh yeah. What was that? Uh, I'm blanking on what that product was called. The, the soul glow. Yeah. The soul glow. <laughs> which, uh, which was used for, for jury curls. And yeah, man, I, jury curls are, will always be funny. Cause yeah, that, that's one thing about the jury curls. Like when I hear about them back in the day, uh, unfortunately I, you know, I came in after, so I never got my jury curl on, but man, that was one thing that everybody says it was just greasy. And yeah, it would just leave <laughs> spots on like couches. 
But throughout the movie, you like continually see Soul Glow. Like there's just a lot of little spots, which is funny because it looks like product placement. But for at least what I know, Soul Glow isn't an actual thing. Yeah, between that and the McDowell's. <laughs> yeah, the McDowell's was also funny, which was they at first I was like, why couldn't they just work at a McDonald's? And then I saw like, oh, it's the joke is that they are ripping off a of McDonald's, mm-hmm. which actually John Amos used to work at um, or John Amos used to work at McDonald's. So that's where they came up with the idea because he used to actually work there. Yeah, there is one character that is kind of in the background. There's like a female character who it's not his betrothed, but there's another female character that's like part of the Zamunda entourage with the king and the queen. But I don't know who she is and it never really pays or calls attention to her. It's not one of the Rose Bears, right? No. I was like, is this like a sister or something? A cousin? Like, who is this girl? I think I know who you're talking about, but I can't. Yeah, they're just they're just kind of there. I don't know. Maybe yeah. they maybe they're the note keeper. I feel, I feel like there's a word for that. I don't like they, think so. They like she was like dressed like in gold in the beginning. I think like she was dressed very lavishly, and then like at the end, doesn't uh, Arsenio's Hawks character have like a moment with her, or is that the betrothed? I think that was the uh, betrothed. Okay. But there's definitely a girl in the beginning, and then I think she goes with them to later on with the entourage. But I don't know. She was just there, and I was like, oh, she has good costuming, but I don't know who you are. Well, everybody has real good costuming, except I don't know if it was intentionally supposed to be comedic. And I'm sorry if this was based on some culture and this was extremely accurate, but the, what are they called? The crowns. Both Devin and I noticed that we were watching and it just looked like it looked like an art project. Like it had seashells glued to it and it had these obviously fake jewels or actually they may have not been fake because they were wearing real Rolexes. So maybe not, but it just it like it looked like an arts and crafts project. Mm, okay. It was, it was just kind of throw me off. But everything else, ag- the costume looks great. Yeah, I will agree that the costuming was was really good in this. I like how they everybody steals their bags and they go outside and now everybody's just wearing all these African robes. <laughs> yeah. This was a very influential, I want to say very influential movie, but this movie did have its influences and significance, probably actually more significant than it was in its influence. You want to go ahead and start off with the influence? Because I believe you had something for the box office, unless you were going to fit that in significance. So as far as the influence that this film had, there are a couple remakes from other countries for this film. There's a Tamil film for called My Dear Marthandan. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, that was based on the plot of Coming to America, as well as a Hong Kong film entitled The Fun, The Luck, and The Tycoon that also had the same plot. It also had a lot of influence in the music industry, and there's a lot of references and samples from the film present in a lot of different music. In 2001, Ludacris himself released a song called Coming to America, which is the same year that CeeLo Green released a track called Sexual Chocolate, which is named after a fictitious band in the movie. And then other artists were inspired by the film in their lyrics uh, and, like I said, in their samples as well, including Nass and J. Cole, who have lyrics that mention the film and are inspired by the film and several other artists as well. Yeah, well, this also had its own legacy sequel, which was done before we actually made this podcast, so we didn't get to do a bonus objective on it. But that 
that came 31 years or 33 years after the the original movie. So the movie definitely definitely has some legacy to it. That movie I heard didn't do all too well, but it was still very popular and I know a lot of people were looking forward to it. Yeah, I actually do look forward to watching it now. Yeah, I'm probably going to still put it off for a little bit, to be honest. Uh, but one day I'll watch it. Somebody's yeah. probably going to have to put it on for me. I'll probably watch it on one of those days that I'm like, just need like a, something to, like I've been watching a lot of those recently because like sometimes I like to multitask when I watch movies. So sometimes it's easy to just put on something a little bit more mindless and something I can kind of put on the background, which I mean, I still pay attention to them, but at the same time, I'm also doing stuff with my hands. I like to crochet and stuff. So it's, it's easy to put on something and crochet at the same time. Now, I only have one other thing for influence, but I know that this is being this is going to be pulled from your significance, so we'll just use it as the segue. We'll go right in between influence into your significance. <laughs> so this is a, another movie that proved black-led films would earn money. Uh, we've talked about it before on the show when it came to Night of the Living Dead. And it's not even just black-led films that it proved that these movies can make money, but it's just movies with people of color as lead will make money. Now, I'm, I'm guessing you actually have some numbers for, well, you already said the, the amount of money that it earned. And this, yeah, this did better than everybody's expectations. And this just kept earning money. And then it went overseas. And you're thinking like, man, well, overseas, is it really going to do that well in communities and countries that pretty much have no black people in them? And yeah. It did well overseas as well. Yeah, something that uh, I saw was that some two things that seemed impossible to do at that time was one for black romantic comedies to do well at the box office. And also uh, it was a thought that a film with an all black cast wouldn't do well overseas. But those numbers definitely prove that a film can definitely do those things. Yeah, you may think also, well, hey, you had Eddie Murphy in it. Of course, it was going to do well. However, the films that he had before this, he was always cast alongside a a white lead. So it was never him and then another black lead. And he actually requested for Hall to be by his side with this movie. And they said, yeah, sure, he's he's another comedian and people love him just as well. But this was something that, you know, was a little bit unheard of. And it's good that Paramount took the took the chance even though they did have uh they did have one request and they were like hey uh is it all right you know if you go ahead and cast a white person and did you read about this Mm -mm, i didn't yeah so hall went on jimmy kimmel live and they talked about this movie and they said one of the stipulations that paramount had is that they need to have a white comedian in the film and they gave him three names, and the name they chose was Louis Anderson. They didn't say who the other two individuals were. Okay. And one of the things that helped is that they liked Louis Anderson, but Louis Anderson also paid for a meal for Eddie Murphy and his entourage, which was the mm -hmm. meal came out to $661 at the time, which looking at current inflation is over $1,200 for a meal. And that's the kind of, he called it an investment that he made, and it paid off. It really paid yeah. off. Uh and and that's crazy. Like you you can't imagine it the other way. You can't imagine like any studio back then saying, "Hey, do you mind if we go ahead and you know put a black person in here?" 
Though actually, no, because well, there there is one, and it was it was happening for a while. We don't get it anymore, but studios were putting in uh, Chinese actors in movies when the Chinese box office was having a huge influence on movies that were being made because the Chinese box office was second to America. So I forget the timeline is within the 2010s. Probably just look at all of 2010. And there was always a Chinese character in there or a character that was ambiguous Asian that they would have in there just to have that one person appeal to all of China, to have them something. And they would be cast on the poster no matter their role. They may have had two lines. They were on that poster. Gotcha. I thought you were going to say like the, the black best friend role. No, because that wasn't so much of a requirement. Like it wasn't like, hey, we need to have this in there to appeal to other um to other races, but that was more like, hey, people seem to like the funny black sidekick, so let's just keep on doing it. I don't think it was mm-hmm. so much like let's go ahead and get the black viewers here. Gotcha. That was actually probably more to get the white viewers in than anything. And as it's funny, it actually it still happens today with Marvel. Uh they used the the same technique when it came to casting Martin Freeman in Black Panther. Mm-hmm. And uh, that random guy in uh, Shang-Chi. Yeah, and that random white guy in Shang-Chi that became way more important. Like, there was a perfect, like, there was just, there was this one shot. I know we were watching it together. We talked about it afterwards. Like, there was just one shot when they were all lined up, and he was right there. I'm like, they put that shot in just for them. <laughs> and, you know, we, we it, it is, I am making a joke. Don't worry. Uh, however, it does have a bit of truth in it. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with that, because, yeah, everything should be diverse. So, you know, go ahead, put some diversity in it. I doubt like everybody, like the only reason why people showed up for Black Panther was to see Martin Freeman. <laughs> Though I'm still really hoping that they at least give him one scene or I don't care if it's a red herring, but I would love to see Martin Freeman at least say he's the Black Panther <laughs> or for, for some people to start suspecting in that he's the next Black Panther. And of course, this this episode is going to come out a little bit later because this is our backup episode. So Black Panther is going to be revealed. But man, that's, that would be something. <laughs> yeah, it, it just goes ahead again and shows that people of color or people outside of, uh, you know, uh, Caucasian, that, that that they can also earn money. And I, I say people of color because I've read something today and they, they make a point, though they were a little bit aggressive with it, but it, it's not just about diversity isn't just about black people yet. Yeah, black people are now starting to get be more prominent in their roles but it doesn't stop there we need all people of color and we've been seeing that because we saw that with another rom-com that did amazingly well and that was with um crazy rich asians they put it right out there crazy rich asians (laughs) and people still lined up and went to see that movie that movie did great and now we're seeing more roles with asians uh but it also goes to show that it's not just because these movies are coming out something different Something else has been happening in society recently that we're now having this shift and these more roles for diversity because like we saw in 1988, like we saw with Night of the Living Dead, black people already proved that they can have movies that are box office success. So something else had to change, not just in Hollywood, but in society as a whole. And that's always really positive to look at. I, I love hearing about it. It makes me frustrated that, you know, it was doing this back in the day, but it, it further goes to show that, hey, we're evolving more. Yeah. And also this film just 
gave a lot of roles to black actors who were up and coming. We talked about Samuel Jackson, this being one of his first big roles. And Eddie Murphy himself, I mean, he later re-teamed up with the screenwriters who, who did this film, uh, Blostein and Sheffield on Boomerang, which was another romantic comedy with nearly all black ensemble cast. So from then on, I think he he still did some movies where he was like buddy with the white character that had primarily a white cast but he also did some other movies that did have a primarily black cast so it was good that you know he was able to bring more opportunities that way though some of those movies half the cast was him himself i don't does that count (laughs) yeah i don't know about that (laughs) i don't know if that counts Uh, but you know going off of that segue into what i like that john landis said about this movie even though he was seeming kind of you know, he was he was smelling himself during that interview. Like that was the one time in the uh, the movies that made us that he he didn't think that he had to introduce himself as a director. It was the first time a director said that, and they were confused. Like, no, you need to introduce yourself. It's like, oh, everybody knows who I am. Like, man, you are that's some confidence right there. Like, I admire it in a way, <laughs> but in others, I'm like, yeah, you gotta kind of come down from that high horse. Yeah, he could have walked past me in the street and I would not know who he is at all. He's not, I don't, like, I don't know what he looks like. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think during that episode, the camera did pan down and it showed that he was actually on a horse that was balancing on a pedestal. <laughs> but but uh, what he said that I really liked is he's, he realized that he is making a black movie, but he wanted to make a black people, a black movie that wouldn't be noticed. And that's exactly what he made. And I, I like that for two reasons. One, he's not making it with the, by saying, oh, I don't see color. Because that's impossible. And it, it, that doesn't show that you have tolerance. That just shows that you're just putting a, putting a blind eye to it. And then I like that he wanted to make a black, uh, a black movie that wouldn't be noticed that it is a black movie. So he's just making it a movie that just so happens to star black people and there's nothing to it. Yeah, there's some, there's some race jokes in here more so towards... Africans, uh, but it's not harmful to Africans because actually the the whole thing is that these people think that Africans are not more um, that they're more civilized. They like everybody's kind of making these jokes that oh you must be poor because you're from Africa when the whole time like no we're we're living lavishly actually. So I I like that. That's that's what made me kind of okay. I got some I got some respect from you. Uh, I, I I don't know, but I agree with that. And looking at some articles, I do think that there was a lot of controversy over its depiction of Africans. And that was something else I kind of put underneath uh, this section. But it's parodies Africans and Africa in a certain way. I think that it tries to balance itself out with kind of making that joke that there is a character who's clearly supposed to be xenophobic, but I do think there are some xenophobic depictions in the film itself that it doesn't shy away from. No, I think, yeah, I agree. It doesn't portray Africans in the best light. It does more so for black people from America. And and then that's the way they set it up. Uh, they even said that while they were making this film, they didn't know anything about Africa. James Earl Jones even told him, like, you guys don't know anything about Africa, but you sure do know Queens. And that's where the focus was. I don't think anything was very, like, straight out offensive. It could have been just out of ignorance, but I don't think anything was meant to make you laugh at Africans. And so I wasn't, I wasn't really, I wasn't offended by it. Yeah, it could have been better, yes, but... Just you're because not it could have been, 
Huh? You're not African, though. I didn't. I can say from my okay, from my point of view, from my point of view, not being African, at least from my point of view, I didn't think it was offensive. Granted, I'm not the one to make a call, make the call. I'm saying personally for me, I'm not making the call saying it's not offensive. I just think from at least from my point of view, I didn't I didn't find it offensive. I definitely didn't watch this movie and have any laughs at um, Africans. I did, Africans were in no way were they um, in my eyes that I looked down. Uh, less at them after watching this film. So I can say, at least for me, walking away from this film, my opinions of Africans didn't change at all. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that there were mixed criticisms about. I don't think that at least my concern going into this film was that it was going to portray the immigrant experience poorly, and I don't think it does that, at least. Yeah, this doesn't go like Pet Detective 2. I don't get this reference. <laughs> oh, you you never seen Pet Detective 2? Ace I've never Ventura? seen Pet Detective 1. <laughs> You've never seen Ace Ventura? Oh, my God. Are we doing this show for us or for you? Confused <laughs> at this point. Uh, and it, well, I'll, I'll just say that their depiction of the Africans, it was very, it was like you're, you're savage Africans. Like you're, you don't know that you're about to be eaten kind of savages. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, that gotcha. that's when I... You know, I, I find that I'm like, come on, guys, like there's there's more out there. So I think like in this, yeah, it may not have been accurate, but hey, it showed them like they're they're the ones that look the best in this movie. They do. Yeah, I definitely feel like it when you have that sort of like fictional country that's supposed to represent Africa, you're going to kind of have an issue just with that concept in general because you're you're homogeneizing a, a whole continent in this one fictitious land. But as far as the story itself, I do think that it tried to balance itself out by, like I said, by having that xenophobic character and, and kind of portraying that as something that's wrong. But it tried to make up for itself in that regard. Okay. And, and playing a little bit of devil's advocate for the sake of argument or for the sake of conversation, where where's the difference between Wakanda and Zambuda? Zambuda? I forgot how to pronounce it. What's the difference between Wakanda and this country other than the fact that I can't pronounce one of them? Because Wakanda is like, a, yeah, that's not at all what Africa, that's not what any place in the world is like. So where would the, where would the difference be in that? Like, where would the offense be in coming to America and not be in Black Panther? Or do you think Black Panther also, it gives, it, it gives a little bit of controversy, a little bit of offensiveness to it? Uh, I mean, that's something that I would leave up to an African audience. I also think it probably depends on uh, if you're talking like just the film version or if you're talking like more comic version. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a nuanced question that I don't necessarily have an answer to. Okay. And, I know like, my... I know like with, uh, from a Mexican perspective, something that I learned recently, but I, I didn't realize that kind of irritated me was that Bane in the comics, he's not actually Mexican. He's from a fictitious Latin American country that doesn't actually exist. Because for me, that's not good representation. So that's kind but of they... my take on it, but I don't know that that necessarily... Uh, it, it's hard to say that this 
is a blank off statement that applies to every made-up thing. It's, it's going to depend on how they present themselves, and it's going to depend, of course, on that community and how they view it. Okay. No, I, that's, that's a good answer. And, yeah, it's definitely not going to be us to make the call. I just, Like I said, I just think that it, it still puts them in a good light. It may not be accurate, but it's still a good light. And the whole Bane thing, I have something else, but that's a whole other conversation. Then yeah. you do a comic book show. Yeah, I was just very disappointed by that revelation I had. <laughs> like, you put him in a luchador mask, and I'm like, oh, yeah, Tio Bane. Well, I mean, Mexico. Black Panther isn't from an actual African country. Yeah, I know, but I'm just talking about, for me personally, with Bane. Oh, oh okay, because this whole time you thought he was from Mexico? I thought oh, because he, he does have a luchador mask, so I guess it's more Yeah, I thought pinpoint. he was Mexican, so when I learned that he wasn't, I was really disappointed. Is he from Mexiconda? <laughs> yeah, Mexiconda. <laughs> And actually, while while we're while we're here, you know, while we're waiting our feet in the in the water, let's just talk about the last controversy in this film. Probably the one that I think most people are aware of is Eddie Murphy plays a lot of characters, and in this, he plays a Jewish man as well. He's got the accent down, you know, the the dialogue, and he's in full makeup. He's in technically he's in white face. I mean, it's not his face, and it's white. What did you think of that? I feel like that's also another area where it's kind of just going to depend on, you know, how you personally feel being a member of that community. I mean, I will note that it was a role written by someone who is Jewish and they got some of the lines from someone who is Jewish. Uh, So, you know, I I mean, I think that's a nuanced situation as well. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to stand there back with you. I'm going to stand back. I'm not going to. Because that's a hard one to say. Because I'm not in that, like I said, we're not we're not in that that category. I, but I will go ahead and just for the for the audience, I will let them know what the argument is that was made. Point uh, some points were made that you said that it was it was made by Jewish writers. They got dialogue from his Jewish father, and then also I saw another argument that it was kind of it was it was kind of a response to to blackface, like kind of how Jewish men before have done blackface. So it was kind of like, hey, you know, we're doing it back at you, kind of, all right, now we're even. And then it, it, it ceased. And I don't think, and one of the things I think the difference is between that and blackface is that, I mean, he's not, they're not really making fun of the Jewish culture here. They're not making fun mm-hmm. of the, the race or the religion. Actually, they're not even doing any of the Jewish stereotypes. There's not a him like, you know, I'm not even going to say the stereotypes because you guys are going to cut that out and come after me in like 10 years during my political campaign. <laughs> but they just, they don't do any of the stereotypical uh, jokes that they could have done with him. They just have him there. It's just like kind of said and done when blackface was used as a way to put black people down. And it was a way to bring an ignorant, dumb character up on the screen for everybody to laugh and poke fun at. So I, I would say that this, him, him pretending to be a Jewish person, that was not, that was not in this case that it was not to bring a culture down. Why did they even have it? I don't know that part. I can't answer for you, but I can say at least it wasn't, it, it wasn't to bring anybody down or it didn't seem like it. Now, granted, if you're Jewish and you think it does bring them down, then by all means, I, one, I'll be interested to hear your response. And two, I'm not going to say you're wrong to be offended if that's your, if that's where you fall in. Yeah. I mean, I will say it's a little bit caricature, caricature, by just how uh, 
Eddie Murphy plays it with his accent, and I think that also is just a very sensitive issue right now, because I think we've seen a lot of rise of anti-Semitism recently, so it's definitely a, a sensitive topic, that, and it's going to be very nuanced. All right, you know, after three times, you can't say that word anymore. <laughs> you already filled up the jar for nuance. <laughs> now, I can say it two more times. I can. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Once I figure, once I remember the definition, but, um, yeah. So I'm gonna take a step back now with you, Caitlin. We're just gonna leave it up to you guys to decide. We're not gonna say anything because we're not Jewish. But that's it for controversy. Other than that, man, everybody has a good time with this movie. I mean, I will say that there is some casual sexism in it, especially with like the beavers. Um, it's definitely a very male focused film, and I mean, it's nothing that I didn't. Like, it's, it's something that I would expect, though, from a film at that time, especially a comedy film at that time. So it is what it is. Yeah. Actually, I thought about that, too. And I was actually thinking about what your response was going to be to that to those beginning scenes. Mm, yeah. The other significance to this is that... Now, this is something I think everybody can agree is not offensive, but we're tired of. Um, and I guess I think some people were actually offended by these movies. This was the first time Eddie Murphy played multiple characters. Maybe the only time that it was well done and was tasteful in some ways. And I don't know if uh, any time before this, because he was inspired by Dr. Strangelove or How I Fell in Love with the Bomb. In that movie, it was a character playing multiple characters. Eddie Murphy liked that idea, so he did it for this. And then he did some more movies, and then some other black comedians did some other movies. And it was a weird time, guys. All right. Uh... Big Mama's House by Martin Lawrence. Weird. Uh, then we had Nutty Professor, which I've, I've seen all these movies, by the way, as a kid. And no, I will not be revisiting them. <laughs> Nutty Professor, just Nutty Professor was was when he got into the fat suits. And then that's when we started having other black comedians get into the fat suits. Because Martin Lawrence, like I said, did Big, uh, Big Mama's House. And then for like one of the sequels, yeah, one of the sequels for that movie, he got another... Black comedians also get in a fat suit. And then there's another one that I can't remember the name of, but they also got into a fat suit. There was also with Eddie Murphy Norbit too, right? Yeah. Norbit is probably the most notorious one. I'm not even, uh, I wonder if Norbit is when he finally stopped. I hope so. (laughs) Hopefully that one was awful. It's probably why, you know, that's, it's believed that's why he did not win that Oscar that year because of Norbit. What was he? uh, He was nominated for? for Dreamgirls. Supporting actor. Oh, uh, okay. And it was like, are we really going to award? Because then they could put that on the Norbit, like the the Norbit poster featuring <laughs> award-winning actor, supporting actor, Eddie Murphy. And you know, because he had oh, multiple uh, roles in that, he could say it again. So they could just keep mm-hmm. saying it with the characters. Also, Eddie Murphy did this with Jack and Jill, which was also another atrocious movie. So not just black actors. And then... Uh, you mean Mar- uh, Adam Sandler? Who did I say? You said Eddie Murphy. Yeah. See, that's how many Eddie Murphy characters there are. <laughs> I don't know who's not Eddie Murphy. Can't tell if there's between Adam Sandler and Eddie Murphy. <laughs> I feel like at the end of this episode, or like in this episode, you're just going to pull up your mask and it's Eddie Murphy the whole time. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah, so Adam Sandler. And then uh, Marlon Wings did, I believe, last year. He played multiple roles. I'm not sure if any of them were fat, but he did play multiple roles. Yeah, that's a trope I wish would just die and stay dead. <laughs> yeah, and, and all that was done by, like, the great Rick Baker. 
Nutty Professor, Nutty Professor 2, Electric Boogaloo, whatever the subtitle was, uh, and even Norbit. They had Oscar. I don't know how many Oscars won. At least two time winning Oscars. Rick Baker doing the makeup for Norbit. Oh boy. Eddie Murphy must be a great friend. Because I want to do that for you, Caitlin. I don't even have Oscars, and I want to do that for you. That's fair. <laughs> Anything else you have for significance? No, I think that's that's all I had. Okay. Well, this is also, I have one more. This is sort of the return of John Landis. It's a little, now John Landis did have a bit of a, he, he actually had a great career before this movie already. Uh, we already talked about American Werewolf in London, Blues Brothers, Animal House, Trading Places. He was doing great. Uh, so it's not, so it, it it's hard to say whether or not that this movie kept him going or brought even brought him back. But he did have an incident with during the filming of the Twilight Zone. Uh, he was one of the directors for one of the shorts, and he was the first director to ever face criminal charges because of the incident that had happened at the Twilight Zone, which led to the Twilight Zone movie trial, in which him and three other people were supervising the filming process, and a helicopter crashed and killed a 53-year-old man and two Vietnamese uh, children, uh, who were, I believe, eight and six. So he was brought up on manslaughter charges, and this went on for four years. And either during this or after he was acquitted, Eddie Murphy requested, you know, personally to have him on this film. And Eddie Murphy was a big name at this time, and he was big enough to make that kind of request. He was actually making all sorts of requests for this film, and he was getting them. I wonder, now that makes me wonder, too, if there were any black actors before Eddie Murphy that could have this type of power. What do you mean? Well, to be able to go into a studio, say that, hey, I want to make this movie. And they said, okay, by the way, I want my friend and comedian and also an actor to be by my side as the co-lead. And I want this director. And I read this on IMDb. I couldn't find it anywhere else. But I did read that he also had Charlie Murphy be his stand-in for $1,000 a day. Oh, interesting. Which also, if you never heard it before, he does an interview where he talks about Charlie Murphy, uh, I believe shortly after Charlie Murphy's death. And man, the things that, that, that brother relationship that they had, oh, that's that's a good one. That's an emotional interview. And as somebody with siblings, that that was that was really powerful and it was uh it was uplifting and motivating to hear. So if you have time, go ahead and check that out as well. Oh, that sounds like a rough one. It is a rough one, but it's such a great story of of like how he just how they brought up each other. It wasn't it wasn't mm-hmm. so much Eddie Murphy. They really neither of them would be in the position without the other one. Who would you recommend this movie to? Between the general audience and the cinephiles. I think both. Uh, I think probably they need more towards the general audience just because I don't know. Sometimes film, sometimes cinephiles can look down on rom-coms um which i don't think is fair at all but it's how it is sometimes so i do lean a little bit more towards the general audience but i do think that cinephiles would enjoy this too and it's just it's it's a good movie i mean they should be watching it yeah i also agree i probably lean more to the general audience but if cinephiles were to ask hey can i get a rom-com recommendation this would be one of them because like you said cinephiles sort of look down on rom-coms I talked about during Pretty Woman. Like I thought to myself, I do feel like I kind of don't watch enough rom-coms or I do look down upon them. 
but there's a lot of them that I really like. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys. Well, coming to America and coming to this podcast are the spoilers. Now, if you haven't seen the film, please uh, go ahead. Refrain from listening to the second portion. If you don't care about spoilers, then hey, go ahead. Continue. I'm not going to be able to tell you what to do. But if you have not seen the movie and you're worried of spoilers, then hey, do not continue any further. Okay? This is your last chance. Now, Caitlin, were you surprised as I was to learn that Lisa was played by Eddie Murphy? (laughs) Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised at this point. (laughs) Not at all. It's like the those videos in that show, Is It Cake? But it's, Is It Eddie Murphy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's exactly what this is. <laughs> I would watch that for seasons on end. <laughs> Rick Baker should definitely do that. Like, just dress, like just, not even just Eddie Murphy, just all sorts of actors and actresses. Just put them as different people and you have to sit there and guess, like, which one is the real one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He could do that. That would be a good show. I'd watch that. Mm. Is there anything you want to talk about with the spoilers? There's really not too much to spoil with this movie. Yeah, I was going to talk a little bit about a trope that's common to rom-coms that really isn't my favorite trope. I'll, I'll still watch movies with it in it, but it, it, it kind of irritates me. It kind of goes along the line of the miscommunication. It's when one character is lying about their identity and you have to follow the film where he's trying to keep his, you know, his facade up or her facade up depending on the rom-com and so that film definitely has this uh akeem is pretending to be poor so that uh, the love interest will fall in love with him based on who he is as a person and not the amount of money he has but i feel like sometimes the lengths that he went to in order to hide this was just a little bit too much and it's like it's like in your head you're thinking okay why don't you just say this <laughs> or why don't you just do this and like it, it did get frustrating at times for me it frustrated me too but i reminded myself that he has had little social interaction so his ability to create an excuse on the spot would probably be something like this that's true that is true but yeah we have that whole thing and then we have to have the climactic scene with the tension of Oh, she left because he was faking it the whole time. When, which honestly, I don't know. From from I guess from a male's point of view, my point of view, I think he had a good reason to why to keep his identity safe or not safe, not even safe. Uh, why he kept his identity from somebody. I agree. I feel like that's a like you don't like being lied to, of course, but it's a, a situation that you could be a little bit more understanding with. Yeah, it's not like he. Yeah, it's not like he was anything else. I'm trying to think of the other rom-coms where there was like that identity switch. It's a very common trope, but right now I'm blanking on it. Because it's so forgettable. Most of them are so forgettable. It's so true. All of them are, except for this one. Yeah, I'm trying to... I'm thinking about like one of those Freaky Friday movies. Was Notting Hill... I mean, you don't know. I don't think you've seen that. I'm trying to think of Notting Hill was like that, but I don't think it... I don't remember... Usually it's like there's a celebrity and he's hiding his identity or she's hiding their identity so that they can be with someone who's lower. So it's kind of similar. I mean, it's not royalty, but it's like celebrity status. The Princess Switch. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that one, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Vanessa Hudgens. Uh, she finds that there's a royal 
female that looks exactly like her. It, they're both played by Vanessa Hutchins. So they switched oh, the places. Oh, Christmas one. Okay, I have seen that one actually. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was actually that was actually a decent film. I didn't mind it. I do enjoy cheesy Christmas rom coms. Yeah, well, it was a nice little touch of cheese. I'm glad Tulsa Tolerant, but uh, th- that that little bit I can handle. Okay, so Notting Hill was not like that. One cliche I thought they were gonna do, and they still kind of did it. But since we have that climactic scene, she leaves. Oh no, Eddie Murphy's gonna go ahead and marry that one bride. Uh, I thought it was gonna be the storming of the wedding or running away from the wedding, running yeah, from the I did altar. Too. Uh, which I can only think of two films that it really works in. And one of them is The Graduate, which you haven't seen. There's a scene in there with a wedding, and then Rugrats in Paris, which once yes, again, I knew it you all were comes say back. It. <laughs> Yes, I was saying, if you do not say Rugrats and Parents, I'm going <laughs> to disown you. <laughs> that one was amazing. Of course, I'm going to reference that one, because that's one of my favorite <laughs> moments with one of my favorite characters. Uh, it always goes back to Rugrats. It always comes back to Rugrats. Because once we start doing Patreon, we're going to start doing revisiting films. <laughs> but it doesn't do that. I mean, the wedding is interrupted, because I, I like it that the veil was revealed, and it was Lisa... It was a nice touch, but at the same time, like, we don't always need this climatic twist at it. And they could have settled everything right there, and then we could have just moved on. Yeah, I, I actually felt that it was a little bit rushed. Like, I would have liked to see something that kind of showed her changing her mind a little bit. It was just like they had this big, long conversation on the subway, and then next thing you know, they're married. It, like, there wasn't, like, there needed something to be in between. That's why. I, that's why I said it was rushed. I was like, mm-hmm. these two really got married, and they're really saying "I love you." They went on one date. <laughs> yeah. Like I know Daryl was a jerk, but he wasn't like that much. <laughs> Though I kind of wondered why she even got with Daryl. But then, that's as the what mo- I never understood. Like I don't understand why she was with him for the first place. As the movie went on, I I did see it. I was like, okay, he has like he doesn't really have a charm to him. But I can see him being like a uh, a uh, a smooth talker. I can see how he got his foot in. I don't know. I didn't really see that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was stretching a bit, but I, I can I see it. Uh, yeah, that that went a little quick with the. But that's that's when I said, "Hey, it's a rom com. Sometimes you know, we just we go straight into the marriage." I do like her response at the end when you said. I, I will still get this all up for you. And she just goes, nah. I did I like that. that too. <laughs> like, let's be a little bit serious here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One being a little bit serious, but also like just that kind of response. That was, it was, it was a genuine response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the whole like jump right to marriage, it does have that fairy tale quality. It is a fairy tale. Yeah. That's probably where it's the most fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing actually that I liked, um, crap, I should have talked about it during when we didn't have the spoilers, but talking about that fairy tale, I like, I like kind of the reverse of roles, how we have a male who doesn't want the arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. And I like how just throughout, he, he's a very likable protagonist. Yeah, definitely. So it's like, yeah, man, you kind of like, I'm not going to say anybody really deserves it, but if anybody was to have this this true love fairy tale, it'd be this character. Yeah, he's just generally a, a nice. Sorry, reset. I said gen, generally instead of genuinely. Oh, <laughs> I, I, it kind of worked. Yeah, but he's just genuinely a nice guy. Like he's a good character, and you, you want him to succeed. Yeah, de- definitely. 
So, yeah, I really like uh, Eddie Murphy's portrayal during this, especially when Eddie Murphy can play somebody who is loud and makes a lot of jokes. Like he's that he's that type of he he can be that type of comedian. But here mm-hmm. he he really brought it down, and I feel like for somebody to be as big of a star as he was, especially as young as he was, because he was only twenty seven when this uh when he made this film or when it was released. Yeah, for him to be able to dial it back and allow other people to have the comedic moments and to be the louder ones in the situations, I think that shows a lot with an actor. Yeah, I agree. And I think that also kind of goes back to how this movie wasn't what I expected. Like like I said, I kind of expected to be a little bit more of a raunchy comedy, a little bit more louder. And so I really appreciated that it, it kind of, it, it still had the comedy, but it was something a little bit more sweeter in the story than what I expected. Now, do you think this holds up? I, I think it holds up for the most part. Like, obviously, there is um, some cultural depictions and, like I said, some casual sexism here and there but that don't really hold up. But overall, as a film, I think that it's still a good story. I mean, rom-coms, it's a, a story that, in general, just just holds up very well throughout the time. It's a, like I said, it's a fairy tale. It's something that just keeps working them as a plot i agree yeah, even with those those things that it could be tweaked it could be tweaked for today's time a little bit but i don't think they i don't think it's shocking to watch it there's definitely some some other ones i'm guessing animal house is one of those interested to see that and then the comedy i think holds up like i said i wish that they had done a little bit more with it but the jokes there are jokes that are you know genuinely funny and they're still funny yeah, I I like the the jokes. Yeah, they they are timely. Like they just they just work all the time. There's nothing really to yeah. They're talking about some boxers, but I mean most of the names you're gonna know. They talk about Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali when they're arguing in the uh the the barbershop, and then you can just fill in the rest. Yeah, there's nothing really that's gonna be like wait what now the jury curl maybe, but <laughs> actually no the way that they depict the jury curl in here and the way they make that joke. You're going to get that joke even if you never heard of a jury curl. Yeah, You may look it up and be like, were people seriously using this? Yeah. Yeah, I think that the way it tells it, it definitely tells it well that you understand what's going on and what it is. So what do you rate this film? Uh, It's hard for me. Actually, no, it's not really that hard. I'm I'm like torn between the B and a B plus. Um, But I think I'm going to go ahead and give it a, a B. I think it's just a really solid film, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I wish I could be different, but no, I agree with you. This is a B. It's a good B film. Mm-hmm. And B's good. Like for me, a B is good. Yeah, no, a B is a B is it's like great. Great. <laughs> yeah, this is a great B. I know on Letterbox, I've been like looking at my rating system, and like I'm like I, I really rate movies really low. But then I'm thinking, like, it really takes a lot to be a four-star film for me on Letterboxd. Like, it really, really does. Like, if I like a film, it's usually going to be, like, a three or a three and a half. But, like, a four-star film is hard hard to get. And then it's way harder to get a five-star. Like, those, like, don't come out very often for me. <laughs> yeah, because a five-star is, like, perfect. Yeah. And, like, 4.5 is, like, a high... Is is A 4.5 is... I guess like a territory, a little bit low a uh, or no high a. Yeah. That's why I don't like the five star system. 
Because if you See, actually turn hard. it into a percentage, then yeah, because a three star would actually be 60%, which would be a D. But what I would give a three star, I would give like a C, a C plus, because that's average. Yeah, exactly. Yep. A three and a half, I would give to some B films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we don't do five stars. That's why we just do letter grades. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we're not doing five stars because it's too hard. <laughs> it's way too yeah. difficult. And make sure to tune in for our next assignment, which is going to be Godfather Part 2. That's right. We're starting off the new year strong, real strong. If you haven't already, go ahead and listen to our Godfather episode in preparation for that. If you have and you have some time to kill, go ahead and join us in HQ. Our social medias, we have Twitter and Instagram at OpSilverScreen. You can also find us on Facebook at Operation Silverscreen. Also, you can join us on our letterboxes and see what we're watching daily. Mine is Swank Seal, capital S, capital S. And Caitlin's is going to be Coffee Spoon Kate, that's C-A-I-T. And also, if you remember from, I believe, our last episode, it was talked about briefly, but Caitlin did finish up production on her, her short film that she was involved in. It's called Ultra Black. So also go ahead and show your support on there. Go ahead and, and follow that as well on all social media. Again, it's going to be Ultra Black, all one word. Till next time, I'm Bryant. See you.